we thought, well, if we lean into trying to develop a really, really hardcore initial community that wants to play Star Wars because they love Star Wars, they love collecting the assets and they want to play, that will actually speak more to your long-term success than tokenomics. Hello, investors. This is Michael with Investorly. At the intersection of Web3 education and opportunity, we empower you to invest early. Sharing the future with you, shaping the future with brands. In episode 24, we welcome FMC, free market capitalist, an investor, advisor, and founder in the cryptocurrency space. We hear about how he got into crypto, what he looks for in investing, the future of NFTs, which he notoriously calls attention tokens, and take community questions. The Investorly podcast is brought to you by Dayslice, a storefront for services, empowering entrepreneurs to have more control over their business. Since partnering with Dayslice, we've seen a noticeable uptrend in our ability to schedule, meet, and connect with users in a much more organized fashion. A win-win for both investors and Investorly. Investorly today and sign up for free at dayslice.com. Use the promo code Investorly to unlock their premium services for only $1. And of course, learn and earn by subscribing to our free newsletter at investorly.substack.com. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. FMC, uh, talk to us. I mean, who uh, is FMC? Tell us your background and, and where did you get started with investing? Sure. Uh, so I started investing when I was 18. Um, I, well, quick, funny story. I, back then, there were these things called fax machine. I was at my grandparents' office. We got a fax for a penny stock for some sort of electronic chiropractor thing. It was a complete you know, rug. Uh, yeah, it was a rug back then. It was a penny stock, whatever. It got me into investing. I was completely uh, entrenched in it and addicted. I actually became a poker player in my 20s. So I played cards until I was about 28. And then something called Black Friday happened. Uh, and that was when the Southern District of New York went and shut down all the major online poker sites. And since that was where I was deriving my living from, I had to find something else to do. I had always been uh, investing on the side. So I kind of knew stocks. And a friend of mine showed me. Uh, I started trading S&P futures. Uh, I did that for a while. And when it comes to crypto, um, back in 2000, I think it was 2008 or 2009, I don't remember, when I was still playing cards, a very, very good friend of mine, former best friend, you may find out why, showed me this thing called Bitcoin. And he explained it to me. He said it was internet money. I told him it was absolutely stupid. Uh, and I spent the next 10 years coping for obvious reasons. Um, and then in 2019, I decided to dip my toe into DeFi summer. A few people I'd known had been trading uh, DeFi on Ethereum, and I got into it, and I stumbled upon a coin called Rarible uh, for the site. Rarible, which is a site you sell NFTs on. And I had kind of known about NFTs. I had heard about CryptoKitties and heard about, so they were in my awareness, but I had never really done a deep dive. When I just rareable and went to the site, something clicked for me. And I really thought NFTs were the only thing that I wanted to do. Now, I had been on Twitter for about 10 years. All I had really tweeted about were 
conventional markets, the S&P 500 charting, these type of things, macro news, all that type of stuff. I haven't really gotten much traction. I had maybe about 770 followers last year. Um, when I really, really said, you know what, I just want to go 100% into NFTs, something called BitClout had popped up. And it was this new social network built on top of a blockchain. It's called DSO now. I'm not there anymore, but it gave me a chance to kind of reinvent myself as the NFT guy. Um, and I would go there and just talk about NFTs. I got any traction doing that on Twitter. I developed a little following over there and made a bunch of friends in Web3. And I think this is where that whole community angle of what Web3 is kind of came into view for me. I had always wanted to do these things, um, but I was the only person I knew who wanted to do them. It was kind of niche. Everybody thought I was crazy. And I met a bunch of people who were just as crazy as I am. Uh, we started a few projects out of BitClout. One of them was, uh, which I actually did not start. Um, but when I ended up joining, because a few friends of mine from BitClout had started it, they, know, they knew that I had been in NFTs for a few years. Um, and they asked, they asked me to actually come on board. Um, so that was kind of my journey from investing to being averse to crypto to getting into Web3. FMC, I don't, I don't, it didn't seem like you missed that much of a run with this thing called Bitcoin in 2009. Is that what it is? <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. A little, little was, bit of cope there. I, and only about six and a half million percent. Uh, that's not all. much. <laughs> no, it was literally fractions of a cent when my friend showed it to me. I told him it was stupid. And I only say former best friend because to this day, he, he does not uh, appreciate that I told him not to buy him. So. Okay, that, well, that, that's fair. That's very fair. I mean, to have that kind of vision when when something so original, unique uh, is created. I mean, imagine somebody telling you about a cell phone in 1983 or <laughs> right. the internet in 1970. It's kind of the same thing where you're just like, eh, okay, that's not going to take off. Uh, wow. Um, <laughs> well, thanks for that story. I appreciate that. Sure. Um, and I wanted to ask you, you know, you obviously have an extensive background in finance. Did you go to school for finance? And was no. there, what, really? What, no, I, you... so I, I've always been obsessed with finance. Like I read the Wall Street Journal and Forbes, even when I was a teenager, just because I liked that stuff. And I wanted to be a filmmaker. I, my whole life I had taken acting classes and had enjoyed film. I wanted to be a filmmaker. So I college very briefly for filmmaking. And then in my second semester, I won a poker tournament um, for $80,000 and decided, well, I can continue doing this or I can go out, make my bag and then make films when I want to. And I kind of got lost in investing and realized this is what I wanted to do all along. So, Well, that's pretty fascinating, actually. Was there was there like a mentor or somebody who kind of guided you along there or was like, oh, I'm doing filmmaking and then I won this gambling tournament, so that's it. I'm totally changing my path. I mean, 100%. I I was completely self-taught. Uh, I the person who jumped into my head was Doyle Brunson because when I read Super System, it really I started to understand how risk management. You know, it was separate from the emotion and what you kind of normally understand. Like it it was it peeled back the curtain and let me see the angles and edges in which people could actually make a living in you know investing or gambling or risk management whatever people want to call it and so how did how did you win that gambling tournament uh it was texas hold'em 
Um, it was an online tournament. It lasted, I want to say, eight hours. And that was pretty much, you know, it was just Texas Hold'em. Uh, you play and there's um, a certain number of people in the beginning. It's a tournament format and it's basically a process of elimination until you get down to a final table and a final winner. Well, that's pretty. That's actually a quick tournament, eight hours. That's not bad. It, it well, that's what was very interesting about online poker versus live poker. Like somebody like Doyle Brunson, for him to get up to a million hands played took him fifty years. You know, forty years or fifty years to get that type of hand memory. He could learn like this is what I do with seven seven, like you know, over so whatever. Get all that experience and probably is when you had online, you could do that in two years. You could play a million hands in in three years, four years. So the amount of experience that a kid by 24 could have would be something that a poker player had over his entire life. And it really moved the game forward. I mean, what poker is is unrecognizable to what Doyle Brunson was playing at the first World Series in the 1970s. Thanks again for bringing us through that timeline. It was really good, but I want to I want to hone in specifically on NFTs. Uh, who exactly introduced you to NFTs? How did you come across? And also, what was the kind of what was the day that the light bulb went on? The conviction kind of switched for you, and you're like, ah, this is actually what was the aha moment for you? So I guess in my personal life and in my background, uh, my grand my great grandmother was an artist. Uh, she was a painter. She started um, one of the first artist colonies in the Hamptons because uh, she actually had to flee Paris because uh, the Nazis had moved in during the war. So she had to leave. She came to America and there was a swamp at the end of Long Island that nobody cared about. That is now the Hamptons. She ended up trading a painting that her fiance had given her at the time. And he was a very famous painter. So she actually got five thousand dollars for it. Uh, bought a bunch of land in the Hamptons, started the first artist Hamptons colony. So art has really been in my family uh, since I was a kid. I've been around it. And I, it's it's like I said, I really I had known about crypto punks. I had heard about them, but I didn't really pay them any mind. When I discovered Rarible and logged on to the site and look at it, I, it's very hard to describe the feeling that I got. The idea that you could collect art so easily um, and that people who before could not sell their art could sell. Something clicked to me. Like I've always said, crypto is a solution in search of a problem. Like we know crypto does a lot of great stuff, but it's all theoretical and it's all based on very, very large systems that are in place changing, okay? Which could happen. I'm not saying it's not going to happen or it isn't something people should but NFTs are a very clear value prop to me. I make JPEG, you give me money, I give you JPEG. People have been doing this for thousands of years. I make something, I sell it to you. That was the first part of crypto. I was like, oh, that's revenue. This actually makes sense. And I thought to myself, you know, maybe as an older millennial or Gen X or even older, the idea of digital ownership makes no sense to you. You know, things that are digital are free. They're, you can steal them, they're online. You can right click, save all that type of stuff. And we grew up bootlegging music like you actually had to record it and steal it or download it from Napster or something like that. The newer generations grew up. Everything's free. All media is free for them. They just try to sell these kids merchandise now. All the music, all the movies, all the TV is either free or very, very cheap 
compared to where what we pay, where they can pay $10 a month for every movie ever, where we had to pay $20 for a VHS cassette. So the newer generations are digital first. They That is the world that they grew up in. So for them, I think it's actually quite profound that something they've always had access for free, they can now own. What do those bragging rights mean to their friend that maybe it's a song everybody knows or something online? You know, we talk about gaming. We're going to get into that. Fortnite, all these skins that kids brag about. Sure, they buy them and they're able to rock them, but they don't actually own them at any time. The, uh, uh, you know, the company could go out of business. They could nerf the utility on your feature. They could change the game from underneath you. Um, those type of things. This to Gen Z, the idea that you can own digital assets, and it was just a light bulb that went off in my head. I just knew NFTs were it. It is the, to me, NFTs are crypto. Wow. I feel like that last part right there where you said, I just knew NFTs were it. What a soundbite. And then tying it together with the Doyle Bronson, you talk about the poker. And all I could think about is heads up and how co-host of Investor Lee's A Conversation With is going heads up with co-host of Morning Squeeze FMC right here live uh, on the space, which that's all I could think about during that conversation, to be fair. Uh, but you said we're going to talk about play to earn effectively and, and that kind of concept, as you, you mentioned, the digital ideas and how gaming plays into all of this. So the Star Wolves are the project that you are uh, firmly associated with multiple things, right? But uh, what interests not just myself, but uh, many is this concept around play to earn, which um, if I know anyone that is really, really well versed in play to earn, it's you. So why don't you kind of set the, the, the concept of, of your experiences with play to earn, how you see play to earn and where you see it going and why that's been important to you to get involved with as far as Star Wolves are concerned. Yeah, so I first got involved with Play to Earn because of a project called Ether Orcs. And Ether Orcs, I actually just finished their community spaces. We do one every week, but it was a free mint uh, back in October. And a member of my alpha Discord one day dropped uh, a new Discord server in and say, go into this server right now, everybody go. And we went in and there was about a thousand people or 500 or a thousand people it was very small uh and everybody in there just said zug like every message in the discord was just people typing this word zug and it was kind of this goofy thing uh that we were all into and it created this this strong community bond over stupidity over this like dumb thing called zug and zug ended up being the utility token for this game but uh after doing that for about a month we minted these free NFTs to Genesis Orcs, as they were called. Um, and then the game began. And the game involved minting more Orcs um, and then minting allies, which have different utility within this game. It introduced me to this thing called P2E. And it was extremely profound to me. You know, we've NFTs for the most part, for the first few years that I was engaged in them, were art. It was, you know, digital artists or even, you know, traditional artists just translating their art uh, into a digital form and selling it uh, as an NFT. 
which is great. I, I love NFT art, but we always knew that there was a lot more NFTs can do because of the technology. I mean, many people say smart contracts may be the most important invention since mobile computing because of what they can do. And to leverage the technology of these smart contract things that are more than just attaching, say, an image to a location on the Ethereum chain, uh, starts, I think, with P2E. And P2E, or play to earn, which is a term I actually hate, um, it is overused, and I think it actually sells, um, it sells digital ownership in the wrong way, because it presents to people that if you play this game, you will make money, or that playing this game will earn you money, which it can in many of them, because the assets in the utility token could be changed on Uniswap, um, for actual money. But when you say play to earn, it creates a very linear situation where you, you're telling people that there's kind of one goal. And if everybody, and these are smart guys, these are guys who are versed in game theory, they're maxmen players, they're very efficient. Once everyone figures out what the efficiency is, it causes great imbalances. And eventually, the, say, liquidity pool for this game can be drained to the point where no one's earning anything anymore. So we call it play to earn. But in reality, what it is, is play to own, because the assets within the game, which were formerly owned by the gaming company and controlled by them, are now owned by you. Why is this important? Well, I think that, as I had stated before, when you are playing a game, and we know how much time people devote to these games, and we know that these games have become their own industry and people make uh, money on them in the conventional Web 2 sense, whether it's through advertising or tournaments um, or things like that. But people devote very, very large amounts of their lives to these games. And if you are at the whim of the game developers and designers, it causes a lot of problems, as we've seen with games like Fortnite and World of Warcraft over the year, when the central organization controlling things either made a mistake or even Scario was forced to, by outside regulation, to change something within their game that could complete, that can make years you spent doing something irrelevant. I mean, this has, this has really caused people to you know stop playing the game be angry be pissed or whatever that is what i think on-chain gaming uh is looking to solve it's one of the main things that play to own as i call it uh can solve and star wolves which is a project that i founded um with charlie Hint hilton will be a play to own mop. that is very fascinating and fmc the way you explain not only nfts but kind of this uh, but the play to earn or as you say play to own uh, it really break th breaks things down uh, in a fantastic way. And I got to be honest, as a co-host myself right now, I'm a little intimidated by this by this co-host guest that we have on right now. But I, I did want to ask the starting point. Okay, so we have NFTs, we have play to earn, or as you say, play to own. So how does somebody get started? Maybe they have a basic idea of what NFTs are. But let's say uh, somebody's listening to this and they're like, okay, so... What NFT projects can you take into the metaverse? Which ones can can become a play to earn gaming? How do you differentiate the different NFT projects uh, so you can start to understand the, the P2E or play to earn? Well, there's there are quite a few different types of games. Um, there are ones that are more straight 
risk protocol. And what I mean by that is they're essentially yield farms with pretty front ends um, that give you some choice, which I'm not against. Uh, it's just one type of game. EtherOrc uh, just launched an actual tactile, movable, something that would be much more akin to a game um, that we would be used to. Uh, but Really, you know, P2, there's there's maybe off the top of my head about 30 projects or 40 projects out there right now that we be considered play to earn. And that's largely because they yield a utility token. This utility token tends to allow you to either acquire new assets within the game, like new characters or land, as we could see uh, with a few of these entities going on. So... One of the hindrances to P2E, especially with the popular games, is the price of entry. Right now, I'm looking at the Ether Orcs floor. It's 1.9 ETH. So your average person probably isn't spending $5,000 on a video game cartridge just to start. Right? That's, that seems pretty insane. And then with Orcs, as an example, you have to stake the Orc and you have to pay money to stake it. You have to bridge it over to Polygon. Um, to get it into the game because all their computation happens on Polygon. And then you have to pay for each action, which I think people from traditional gaming may not be used to. So if I send my orc into a raid, I have to pay him to go into that raid because you're doing something on chain. As we know, every action on chain costs gas. So one of the cheaper P2Es um, to get into right now would be something like Raid Party, which is extremely cheap from where it debuted as it's crashed a lot. I think a lot of these games experience an initial hype cycle, which is something we wanted to avoid at Star Wolves. I'll, I'll talk about that a little bit, but something that we saw with like Wolf Game at the end of last year or Wizards and Dragons and something we saw with Raid Party is they get off to very fast starts. Um, the initial rush and the initial hype into the game actually causes people to earn a lot of money early on. People early on in Raid Party were earning $2,000, $3,000, $4,000 a day, but these things aren't sustainable. Um, so eventually there's a lull. And you saw the same thing with Ether Orcs. They opened at 5 ETH. By the end of the first phase, they were down to 0.4. Um, most of these games have those ebb and flows and those waves. So as somebody who wants to get in, you obviously want to uh, wait for those valleys uh, at which it's a good time to get into the game. With Star Wolves, we wanted to think about it differently. We said, when analyzing what actually makes these games viable long term, it comes down to community. And, and, you know, the two things that they talk about ad nauseum in NFTs are community and we're early. And I kind of hate talking about them, but it really means something in gaming. Because if you think about any large game, Rocket League or Fortnite, there are very, very large dedicated communities that play these things because they love playing them. They're not getting anything out of them except the satisfaction of playing. So uh, Ether Orcs really survives because their community loves to collect and play their game. And we thought, well, if we lean into trying to develop a really, really hardcore 
initial community that wants to play Star Wars because they love Star Wars, they love collecting the assets and they want to play, that will actually speak more to your long-term success than tokenomics. I think tokenomics is this term we use in crypto as some sort of like panacea. Someone's going to come up with some sort of formula that creates alchemy and we're pulling value out of thin air. Well, it just doesn't work that way. I mean, any of these games, if you're pulling money out, it has to come from somewhere. Anybody who's farming and selling these utility tokens on Uniswap for ETH, well, that money has to come from somewhere. So you need to balance how many people are collectors and players versus how many will use it as passive income. So when getting into these games, and there's about 40, um, I'll actually pin a really great tweet uh, to the top by a uh, user called Crypto Kermit who puts out a list of yield rankings for all of the P2Es every week. Um, and it's a very good comprehensive list of them for anybody who wants to get into uh, P2E or on-chain gaming or play to own, as I like to call it, can check out all the products that are available and the yields they offer. Most of these um, projects will earn you back what you spend on them in under a year. Uh, and that's a very good ROI uh, in traditional investing. In crypto, we may say, ah, 100%, who cares? But that's, you know, it's pretty profound and it's very interesting. Um, so getting into P2E, yeah, like I said, wait for it to pull back a bit because they always go through these peaks and valleys. But that's generally my advice for new players. It sounds like we're early in the community of uh, tokenization. Are, are those some of your favorite phrases? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> basic. <laughs> <laughs> right. Ah! Oh, man. All right, FMC. Let's talk about Star Wolves. Tell us about the inspiration behind Star Wolves. How did how did you come up with it? Uh, and um, and where where are you at so far with the with the project? Sure. So I had been in NFTs about three years, had always wanted to start a project. I mean, you you mint a lot of stuff, you buy a lot of stuff, and you always say to yourself, well, I would do this differently, or I think I could do this better. And, and you're, you're thinking to yourself, but, you know, not to sound corny, but I care about NFTs and I care. I never wanted to put out something haphazardly. So I had just, I had written a lot of drafts of stuff, but I'm not an artist. I don't draw. I, I don't do any of that. So I never really knew where to start, though. I had come up with a lot of concepts. And I had gone to this uh, place called BitClout, this social blockchain, so to say. And I had met a guy named Charlie Hilton there, who's actually a pretty famous graphic designer and UI ex um, expert who designed, I believe, uh, a lot of Silicon Valley um, uh, UIs and UXs for uh, very high-end companies, all that type of stuff. And he had always said to me, like, I want to get into NFTs. I don't know anything. So even back last year, I helped him mint his first things, and he had always been thinking of projects and stuff. But I had conceived a project I called Metal Wolves, and it was inspired by, I had always been obsessed with wolves when I was a kid. Um, my grandmother was a wolf preservationist in the Pacific Northwest, so there was all this wolf imagery around me. It was just something I was obsessed with. And I also love the video game Star Fox. So 
it was just at a time when pixel art was kind of hot at the end of last year. And I was thinking about this stuff and I conceived something called Metal Wolves, but I hadn't told anyone about it. This was just something that I had eat up on my computer and I wrote this whole business plan and idea for it. One day in Alpha Mint, the Alpha Discord that I run uh, with a few other friends, Charlie Hilton comes in and he just drops this picture of a pixel wolf. And I, it was like he actually pulled it out of my brain. And I was even, I was like, how did he know that I was thinking of this? And then he drops three more in there. And I was like, oh my God, I DM'd him. And I said to the player, I was like, you're not going to believe this. And he was like, whoa, are we actually going to do this? And I said, yeah, let's do this. And I want to say this was a few weeks either before or after Orcs had minted. So we had already been having strategy sessions at Alpha Mint about Ether Orcs, how we were going to play. I had already become quite obsessed with this, and I knew I wanted to do um, a game. So after we had settled on kind of the art and structure, uh, we began working on the game. And we've been developing the game now for six months, and we actually started the game in the discord so one thing that was unique about star wolves was the way that we approached our discord so it's pretty standard that every nft project has to have a discord but if you look around they're basically all the same they have a general chat hobby rooms an announcement page a giveaway page and it was just the same model repeated over and over again and we had found it very tired we also were really averse to grinding this this traditional quote unquote discord grinding where people had to reach a certain level to get a loud list and this type of stuff. So we had almost decided to scrap a discord completely and said, let's let's be different. Let's just have a Twitter and try to approach it that way. Um, but we had been in a project that was never ended up minting called Nora. But in their Discord, they had this comprehensive game that was based on Discord bots and you had factions and they even um, elected governors for each faction. And basically, anytime a horde would come and invade your faction, everyone would have to run into the Discord and start clicking things. And it was this really incredible community bonding thing to the point where when they ended up not minting, nobody cared. It, it, everybody laughed like, oh, that was pretty stupid, but this game was so fun. And we thought to ourselves, well, if we're going to do a Discord, let's at least do something different. And our Discord is completely a game. There's maybe one chat room um, for people who want to chat. Otherwise, every other room are different parts or levels of this game. And people play and uh, earn XP and points and items, and they earn their way up into different levels of the Discord. And before Mint, they were able to earn things like Genesis Wolves. So our collection is broken up into two, 100 Genesis Wolves, and there are 8,888 Generative Wolves. One way that we were giving out Genesis Wolves was based on people who played this game. So our Discord, it's always in character. Uh, it's based on our lore. Um, and we wanted to be, we never wanted to break character. We wanted to be different. We we view NFTs as entertainers. We think that we're competing for minutes with entities like Netflix. Therefore, it kind of behooves us to really lean into what, you know, what are we as an entertainment property? So our lore, it's very prominent in the Discord. Everything is gamified. 
Um, and I think people really appreciate it. It's how we started to build our community because we would drip in 100, 200, a, a few people at a time to test things. They would say, oh, this sucks, this broke, there was a bug here. And it allowed us to build the game up over months before we actually opened it to the public. And we are going to, and one thing I want to say is that we are going to make sure that every minute you spent playing the game in the Discord translates into our actual game when it launches towards the end of Q2. So all the XP, all the points you earn, everything will translate into the game. So essentially, the Star Wars game has already started. It started in the Discord. Uh, we are going to be launching the actual web version of the game in phases. Uh, and we expect to have it out completely by the end of Q2. Wow, that is, uh, man, I love, I, <laughs> I feel like every answer you give, I'm just more and more kind of fascinating and how, uh, fascinated how you can provide so many details, yet it's perfectly explained uh, exactly <laughs> the way it should be. That's <laughs> pretty amazing. Uh, but we do actually have a, um, a question from the audience here. I, I brought him up as a... 100%. I always do have questions for... FMC. So um, just uh, an opinion on your side, since you're so well-versed in all the um, play-to-earn space and play-to-own, play call it. Um, what do you think of the play-to-earn phenomenon in, the, in third world countries like Colombia, like Philippines, like all these countries that are going nuts on play-to-earn? I, I, I find it to be incredibly interesting. I mean, Axie Infinity... Uh, which was mentioned before, was kind of the first one to really break into the mainstream. And it was in places like Asia, where there were people actually running huge, I, I, I guess they called them universities or scholarships, I forget the exact terminology, uh, but where people were making amazing livings off of Axie Infinity, because obviously in a third country, uh, it is a lot easier to make a living off a smaller amount of money than here. So place it where as $50 may not be a lot to make on a daily basis in a developed country and underdeveloped countries, it is a week's salary sometimes. So this is how Axie Infinity really, really got popular. And Axie allows something that was called uh, renting, I believe, or scholarship. So you could actually lend your assets out to people to play the game. Unfortunately, again, this caused a very linear issue with Axie Infinity and they crashed. And I'm not sure if they'll ever reach their former glory, but they did prove uh, this concept and they did show how amazing this could be uh, in other parts of the world, like you just said there. Uh, yeah, I was gonna say that, Tan, I agree with you. Uh, some of you know, Danny, you might not know, but I, I live in Colombia. This is a very, there were kind of like, there were country model, let's say. Um, and yes, like you stated, um, like there's a bunch of people who can actually make a living out of play to earn games like Axie Infinity. And even though they fall, like you can still make, make a profit and a living out of this. And there's a bunch of people playing on a daily basis and promoting it and creating communities and everything. Just the other day, I was hit by a, by a proposal from the Axie Infinity team, uh, themselves that they were looking for like some sort of uh community um market manager it was and uh, although the, the offer was not good but it, it it tells you of the 
the growth that these these uh these spaces getting on the in third world countries like like Colombia and uh, of course the boom they have in, in Philippines was super interesting but uh, it caught my attention uh, how they are actually looking into Latin American X so thank you for your output I really appreciate it yeah of course so fascinating hearing Daniel talk uh, and getting that idea about what it's like in a third world country, that real on the ground feeling, which is really why we do these spaces as a global conversation. We can learn from everybody. So it's really a fascinating thing. You mentioned FMC, that Axie Infinity uh, has obviously had a, a huge uh, you know, it's been a roller coaster, obviously very high up, and then it's come very far down. There's been other things that have played into that. But, you know, if it, if we think about hacks, if we think about money lost, um, the market, all of that is fine. Uh, but I think the play to earn conversation in general, what you guys, you know, hearing what you're focused on at your project specifically, uh, it, it, you know, it's fascinating. But also this idea where you call it play to own. How do you see play to earn, play to own going forward over the next couple of years. Do you think that this is something that is going to be here to stay and just needs to be iterated on so that we get to a certain level that makes sense and it just becomes something that's like a norm in society? Or do you think this is more of a, a short-term moment where some projects maybe get it right, but it doesn't really stick? Or do you think like lasting in the NFT space, crypto space, blockchain technology type of mode of how you can actually do gaming, but also uh, earn or own uh, and make a living as what we've already heard from some of our guests. Yeah, I think that largely the way P2E is set up now, it's very short term minded. Uh, I think a lot of the P2Es, like I said, have a very linear concept. And the problem with that is when people can see an endpoint they eventually try to exit and they all try to exit at the same time and it, and it breaks your game. I, 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 that said, I do believe the long-term prospects are great. And I think that's because of what we lined out before when it comes to digital ownership. The concept has already been proven that people want to buy digital items and own them. They just don't know yet that they don't actually own them. And I think that as that as people understand that that's kind of the avenue in which on-chain gaming can really make its roads now there's i think there's a few things that are going to happen here you have small um projects and teams that are trying to make very big games that appeal to the world and that's very difficult i mean we know that most startups fail we know that it is not it is not easy to make a Fortnite. It is not easy to make a World of Warcraft. And small crypto native teams may not be the ones who can build such an entity. There, we are going to start to see things like Activision and Electronic Arts and then move into on-chain gaming. I think we're already seeing consolidation in the industry ahead uh, of them moving in that direction. And be as we see that i'm i think we're going to start to see very very large experienced teams start to put together projects um free so you're going to have it coming from two different angles i think you're going to have small startups that are trying i think you're going to have the big players start to come in and i do think it's very viable 
long term because of the idea of digital. So if we're if we are presenting it as a way for people to make money, it's never going to last because uh, you always need new players coming in at the bottom of the game to support those who are early at the top taking money out of it. It's essentially a Ponzi scheme until it isn't. You need people who want to play the game to play. All of these other games, people do not play them with the expectation of earning money. So the games that make it, the on-chain games that are successful are going to be the ones that people want to play for reasons other than money. That is going to cause them to actually be money-making machines for the people who do want to miss. So it, it's just one of those counterintuitive things in the world where it's like, People need to play it to not make money so people can actually make money. Very well said. And, uh, you know, there was a question that we had a couple months ago for Matt Spasta, uh, founders of Chibi Labs. And it was it was kind of interesting to hear his viewpoint on how he looks at it, the project that he's that he's kind of created and, and works on with his co-founders and the progress along. And um, one of the questions we asked him were, what were, the, what were the growing pains that he's had uh, since founding the project and along the way? And so FMC, uh, since creating Star Wolves, uh, what are some of the growing pains that you've seen to where, you know, maybe somebody can, can learn from this as the industry matures day by day? Well, I think that the, the biggest danger that we have as uh, NFT projects is to overpromise things because... It is very difficult to execute on a roadmap. Like when you think about larger gaming or even just traditional companies in general, they're not putting out every step along the way that they take to get to their goals. They have some overarching goals that they'll tell you in quarterly reports and things like that. But they need to leave themselves wiggle room to adapt or change. And the problem is NFT projects feel immense pressure because so connected to their communities, more connected than a traditional company. I mean, NFTs sell you access more than anything else. It's the number one utility for any NFT. And if you buy an NFT, you tend to have pretty good access to that team. There's either a Discord or a Twitter or Spaces. And that is very unlike traditional companies. So I think that you have to be even more close to your vest in NFTs because the danger of overpromising uh, can really cause financial pain in an illiquid asset. And it's just it's so hard to know how things are going to play out that I think learning to not feel pressure from your community to say something you shouldn't was one of the first lessons I learned. I mean, even before we had the Discord out and stuff like that, our hype cycle almost got away from us. I mean, I had just put on this snow wolf that you're looking at as my PFP in the Kaiju Discord. And this is before we had even announced the project, what it was called, anything. I woke up to 400 DMs the next day. What is that? What is that PFP? I need to get it. Tell me what it is. All this type of stuff. And we sit, we got together. We were like, wow, a lot of people are asking for this. Should we put out like a little teaser video and this? And we put this stuff out and the hype got crazy. Within like three weeks, we were at 14,000 followers on Twitter, which was a lot for an NFT project that did no conventional marketing. And we had barely, barely started building the game. And we quickly realized, oh, shit, like 
people are basically, we probably could have launched a low effort project the next week and sold it out and completely disappeared. Like that is how much hype we had garnered just in that, in that short little bit. And then we were like, oh shit, we have a lot of runway right now before we can actually put out a product. And we were stuck. Like I, I think we plateaued at fourteen thousand followers and stayed there then for months. And the whole time, I can in the back of your head, you're like, "Well, are you ever going to be able to start that hype cycle again?" Every day, people are like, "Oh, I remember Star Wars from like last year." You know what that type of thing. And it was just like, you know, don't don't feel pressure to put out stuff before you shouldn't, because in NFT, your community uh, has very easy access to you, and they will let you know it. So you pod, baby, under promise, over deliver. It sounds like you're an accidental marketing genius. <laughs> you just woke up one day and all of a sudden you just uh, you hit a wildfire. <laughs> you went. Uh, that's yeah. amazing. That's that's pretty great here. Uh, so we do have um, a community question here from Elijah the Elephant. Uh, Elijah, do you have a question for uh, FMC? FMC, uh, Investorly, thank you for hosting the space. Uh, I was going to ask you, you said something about Star Fox. What was your favorite character and level on Star Fox? Man, so this was Star Fox 64. And I'm going to tell you the names are escaping me. Okay, so don't kill me on this. But definitely Star Fox was my favorite character, the main character. And there was a level where uh, everybody was in space. Man, I can't even remember the name of it. But like everyone was in space. We were completely in space. We weren't on a planet. All right. It was just everyone was in space. And I think we were, uh, I don't know, fighting (laughs) oncoming enemies. I don't remember. But yeah, that was that that was my favorite character was definitely the fox. All right. So uh, it's interesting getting these uh, community questions, which we appreciate everyone for for sharing them. What does the next year uh, or so or even let's go to the rest of 2022 from an investing perspective, from a greater NFT perspective? You know, there's so many things happening in the world and just talking about investing and in the macroeconomic play. I know you're very into uh, markets. So give us the way you view where we are, uh, you know, when we look at just macroeconomics, we look at investing and we think about the space. Uh, where do you see us headed for the rest of the year? Um, and where have we started from to begin the year? Yeah, I mean, in January, we had arguably the greatest bull run NFTs had ever seen, especially small cap projects. We had like a pretty big lull from October until early December. And then we had a week where Alien Friends, Cool Man's Universe, and Little Lemon Friends all launched. And over the next few weeks, uh, from small cap projects all the way up to blue chips, I think we saw one of the greatest runs um, NFTs had ever had. It quickly shifted into an anime meta uh, by mid-January. And then it was what I like to call a stock picker's market after that i think that you really had to know which projects to be in it was not just rising tides lift all boats and then of course we had the macro backdrop causing basic risk off uh, across all markets and assets throwing a wrench uh, into everything i think with nfts we have a general tailwind of mass adoption where the collector base is constantly growing and that is thanks to 
Web2 and traditional entities moving into this as I think they see the opportunity in digital ownership as much as anybody else. So at the beginning of this year, I had said that I did not expect ETHCOIN or the S&P 500 to get above uh, the all-time high that it had set. I thought that we were going to have a consolidation year in which that everything pulled back, um, but did not crash as some people had expected. And then by middle of the year, we would climb back up towards the highs, but we were just going to stay in this range and essentially consolidate and work off the froth uh, from the last few years. It's played out that way, though. I think we've gone a little more extreme to the downside than I thought, mainly because of the geopolitical issues and, and inflation that's going on. I think today was pretty interesting because there was capitulation, it felt like, over the last couple of days in NASDAQ. And then at the end of the day, we actually had pretty good earnings out of Facebook and PayPal. And you wouldn't even say it was good earnings, but the the fact that the stocks were up in reaction to terrible earnings tends to tell you that things have been priced in. You know, when you price in world ending, it better end or you get a pretty nice short squeeze in the other direction. So what I've thought is that we, while it's going to be choppy for the rest of the years, we probably won't take out the lows we made and we probably won't take out the highs. And I have thought that in the midst of all of this, NFTs are just going to work. And that's just because we have that tailwind of mass adoption. What I think you're seeing in the current climate, like in this very specific short term moment, is money rolling up to more uh, positive EV plays like blue chips away from small caps because of uncertainty and because of oversaturation uh, on the lower end. In, fe in January and February, we had a ton of small cap projects launch. And just given that we only really have a million unique wallets on OpenSea, there's too much supply right now. Now, if we get another 3 million wallets by the end of the year, there's probably too little supply. And of course, other projects will launch and you know that'll mitigate, mitigate that a little bit. But I just think that the moment we're in right now, anybody who has liquid is rolling up into what they consider safer bets. Uh, anybody who doesn't is stuck on the sidelines and you're seeing sm uh, small and mid cap projects that aren't in their hype cycles suffer because of that. So, so I guess the, the thing that I wonder is when you think about where NFTs have gone, you know, have, ha have gone or, or come from and you, and you think about the next period, how in your mind do you think that we get you know, the next set of users into it? Is it is it because Elon now, you know, owns Twitter and more people want NFTs? Is it because Instagram institutes uh, verified PFP profile pictures and that opens up the audience? What is that next driving force that really, really gets the people that aren't already in, but the people that are not in and gets them to jump in where they actually believe? Because obviously, you know, we think about how do you get the next set of users in and that's what I keep wondering is, so we have the certain people that are already, you know, they're, they're into NFTs. They believe in it. They've been here for however long. But how do you get that next great wave in your mind? Uh, I think you kind of hit the nail on the head. I have said before that I believe the hexagon is probably the most important thing to ever happen to NFTs. Because now hundreds of billions of people who may not even know what our NFTs are, 
are seeing this weird thing pop up in their streams. Why do these people have a different shaped PFP bubble? Why is it a hexagon for them? It doesn't make any sense. And they go and click and investigate. It's like, huh, NFT, what's that? And even if they dismiss it, now it's planted in the back of their mind. So I think something like TikTok and Instagram and these other social media platforms doing some sort of verified PFP is going to be huge. You know, the number one utility for any NFT is that you can wear it in your PFP bubble. These are flexes. This is like wearing Louis Vuitton. It's the new fashion, right? This is digital fashion. So I think that leaning into that, like Twitter did with the hexagon, is really what's going to bring in more users right now. It's just, it's that awareness. Plus, I do think companies like Yuga, who are thinking a lot more web two minded in the sense that, well, we need to get these apes into the hands of celebrities because that's who people listen to, that's who people emulate, uh, and that's what's going to drive adoption. So I think those type of things give people the ability to flex. That's all. That's what human beings want to do. We're vain. Give us that ability. I like that ability. We're vain. <laughs> uh, well, FMC, you made a great point there about the today with the stock market. I'm kind of backtracking here, but today with in the stocks. Uh, or the whole market, I didn't even bother watching. I was like, okay, this week has been terrible. And I didn't watch earnings afterwards, but I didn't realize, I, I looked it up when you were talking about Facebook Meta, and I, it, it's up 18% after hours. <laughs> so, yeah, there's some sort of massive catalyst there that had a bounce back with with the uh, big cap uh, and, tech stocks. And, yeah, and really, none of the earnings were that great. But you look at the NASDAQ, I mean, you look at that chart, they're basically saying, well, all tech is going to zero. I beg to differ. Okay, as long as we're not going to zero, I think we've overpriced uh, what the worst that could happen, and there's going to be a bit of a snapback at this. But again, I'm not wildly bullish and expecting new all-time highs anytime soon. I just think that infinite is something we've expected. It is something we have purposely tried to make for two decades, and now people are complaining because we finally made it. Inflation is good. Inflation is growth. It's what we want. I understand that we need it to to cool a bit and we don't want the rate of growth to be so high and it needs a blah, 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 blah. I get that. But we have been trying to fight deflation for two decades and we finally did it. I think we should not be uh, as scared about it. Uh, that's, a, that's a pretty interesting concept there. Well, I think, you know, the, overall with Facebook Meadow, the, the sellers were exhausted from last quarter. And, you know, the, I thought it was funny. I was watching CNBC the, the morning after um, Netflix and it's uh, you know they came in with their analysts and everything was downgraded on netflix well thanks thanks monday coach for coming in there and see so, you know it's down 25 30 percent yeah thanks a oh lot oh my god coming in here after the fact and saying you're downgrading it well that that helps a lot to the investors you know left holding the bag <laughs> but yeah, don't get me started on the analysts when they raise their price targets and oh my god it's pointless yeah. they're, they're always just chasing either direction yeah, pretty easy to give a, a higher price target if the, the stock has been moving up for four months straight. So, yeah. But anyway, uh, on to uh, on to like player and NFTs. And I asked about this earlier, like um, a person, how to get started, you know, um, to get their feet wet uh, in this kind of universe. But what are some of the best resources that you have come across, the simplest and best resources that you've come across to help somebody out and kind of empower them to get into NFTs and also kind of this and also the play to earn universe. Well, I would say Discord is going to be your best tool. Um, 
they may be called alpha rooms, something like Alpha Mint, which is mine, or MVHQ, uh, which is also one of the larger ones. But they have entire sections in their discords dedicated to gaming, specifically on-chain gaming. And alpha groups should not be discounted. I, you shouldn't necessarily look as an alpha group as a place for tips, because I think that's how most people look at them. Like, oh, I'm going to get in and get a tip, and I'm going to place a bet on that tip and I'm going to make a lot of money. The advantage of these is the hive mind and community thinking. So the absolute best tools would be discord groups that are gaming uh, on chain gaming focused. The two that jump into my head are alpha min and MVHQ. Those would certainly be the largest, especially in respect to things like ether orgs or, or raid party um, or something like that. But that, I, I definitely think Discord is easily the best resource for that type of thing. Also, Twitter. I mean, we know that most NFT uh, discourse happens on Twitter. So the curation feed is very important, knowing who to follow and who to listen to. Uh, those are your best resources. It, You know, I, there's no books that I know of yet. And it's this thing where even Michael asked before, you know, is it sustainable? Well, it's like, I think the way it's set up right now, it's not sustainable. So how could you even write a book on something that changes um, so often? But a community, and I know I keep talking about the bad nausea, but believe me, it's not just because I'm shilling my bags, but Ether Orcs, just getting into that community to learn. Don't even have to buy an orc. Um, you have access to most of their rooms without buying one. That discord is maniacal about gaming and how one would approach the strategies and what properties that, that they could take uh, in doing. So discord was traditionally a gaming app, I guess. And that would definitely be where I would go uh, if I were a beginner. Beautiful. A lot of great information there as far as resources far as where you can learn more about the entire space and how FMC sees it moving forward, as well as places to really dive in. The only thing I'd love to add from InvestorLease perspective is that when you do your research, when you learn about these different places, when you jump into a Discord, remember to be very secure. Safety and security in all industries are paramount, but none the more than in the cryptocurrency industry because it is such an early phase, uh, massive uh, adopted space. While there is so much opportunity, there is also so much opportunity to do bad and to take advantage of others in ways that you don't uh, you know, normally see. And so when you go into a Discord, when you go into a website, make sure that when you're connecting your wallet, you know what you're connecting to. Make sure when you're signing transactions that you know what you're signing and that you do double, triple checks. Uh, security and safety in the industry is uh, the most important thing. You can work a lifetime, quite literally, to build up uh, a portfolio that you would want anyone to see and it can be wiped away or taken from you uh, just by a few wrong clicks. And that is one of the areas of um, you know, investing that is, is, is so important when we look to the future and how you can protect yourself. So as you're learning about resources, make sure you're also paying attention to securely, uh, you know, make sure that your assets are uh, in safe, uh, you know, hands, safe 
places and that wherever you're learning and getting your information from, especially when it comes to a crypto wallet and blockchain, that you know what you're connecting with, who, uh, because scams are prevalent. Um, not to say that this is a fraudulent industry, but just to say that security has to be taken very seriously because that is an area as uh, you know, uh, a source that you know, operates in it and we pay attention to it, we see quite frequently how easy it can be to have a lapse of judgment to think you're doing something that gives you an advantage, but really it's just taking from you and creating uh, a really bad situation. So I love all of these tools that you've provided FMC, uh, but simultaneously just want to add that and I'm sure you'll second exactly what we're saying. Yeah, close your DMs. There's no reason to have your Discord DMs open. Uh, to people who you are and friends with. There's a little in there. Toggle that switch. Keep safe. Uh, it's all social engineering attacks in Web3. So just be very careful. Always double check the name that's DMing you. Uh, all that good stuff. Yeah, close your DMs. I have a question for you, FMC, because I can't tell if I'm messing this up on a regular basis. When you have one Star Wolf, is it a Star Wolf or is it a Star Wolf? Star Wolf, if you have one. You can't, we, okay. we change it singular. Yeah, Star That's Wolf. That's what I thought, but yeah. I'm like, you know, in the NFT space, it is your project. Anything goes. And so I'm sitting here thinking, which way is the way to do it? Uh, I think Shadow Chase has just got in your head. Now none of us know how to pronounce Wolf. 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 Uh, wolf. This, is, this is investorly. We don't know a Shadow Chasers here. Uh, well. With all that being said, one of the fun ways that we like to wrap up our conversations here at Investorly, a conversation with, is uh, with Rapid Fire. And Danny, uh, this is your thing. You've created this. Uh, so uh, have some fun with it. Uh, Mike, first of all, how did you not know it was Star Wolf? I mean, come on. <laughs> Jeez. Uh, anyway, FMC, you ready for some Rapid Fire? Let's go. All right. What is one thing you do in your daily routine that has contributed to your success? Drink coffee. Any particular coffee? Uh, espresso Vivace in Seattle. Best beans in the world. Uh, check them out online. Espresso Vivace. Change your life. Oh, he's bougie. I got it. Okay. <laughs> uh, next question is, your favorite crypto and why? Ether. Because I am an ETH uh, maxi. I believe that Bitcoin is a bet that something will collapse and ETH is a bet that something will be built. And I'm an optimist. I see. Okay, that makes sense. Who would you mentor you? Uh, who would I like to mentor me? Wow, that's a good one. Pranksy. Okay, why is that? Best NFT trader of all time. Knows that it's just he, the, these NFTs. I, I just would love to learn from the guy. Very fair. What's your go-to drink after a long week? That would be an old-fashioned. Oh, anything? Any specific brand of uh, whiskey or bourbon? Happy Van Winkle. <laughs> Very nice. Next one. One city you'd like to visit or go back to? I'd like to visit Tokyo. I've never been. Tokyo. All right. That's, uh, I've been, and it's a fantastic city. Next question is, what would you do if you weren't an investor? I would grow cannabis. We'd like to thank FMC, Free Market Capitalist, and the community for a great conversation. Stay informed, learn to earn, 
and subscribe to our free newsletter at investorly.substack.com. Investorly, empowering you to invest early in yourself.